You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our Saviour King, faithful through every generation and always with us by your Spirit. This day, may we see your glory. Amen. You know, some years ago, I read this report in a magazine written by the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Let me tell you about it. Des was a missionary in PNG. He was translating the Bible to the Binumarian tribe. And when it came time for him to finally translate Matthew's Gospel, Des, well, he started at chapter 2. Because the genealogies, well, let's face it, they're not very exciting, are they? And he wanted the Binumarians to kind of get the meat of the gospel. He he didn't want to turn them off with an irrelevant list of names. But his language assistant, Sissia, was, you know, as she read through chapters 2 to the end of Matthew's gospel, was pretty unenthusiastic about the whole gospel. So... With only one chapter left to go, Des had nowhere else to go but to translate Matthew chapter 1. And so he did. And after he was done, that night he went to one of the village houses to test run his translation. So he sat down and the men crowded in. And nervously, he began to read aloud Matthew chapter 1. There was complete silence except for the crackling of the fire, and Dez's voice which repeated the word fathered over and over again. He kept on reading. Verse 17, And in this way there were however many generations from Abraham to David, and from David there were who knows how many generations unto the exile, and from the exile there were who can really remember how many generations until Christ. And as he finished, He looked up to the hushed crowd, and the man sitting next to him raised his hand and said, Listen, this is what we've wanted to know. This is it. This is not the white man's myths or legends. Now we know it happened. What myth or legend carefully records family names down through history? None. Now we know this really happened happened. Now, friends, I tell you this story for two reasons. Uh, Firstly, it helps us appreciate that uh, parts of the Bible we tend to relegate and ignore as irrelevant, other cultures actually really value as very important. But secondly, and probably more importantly, it helps us see that we, all of us, belong to a bigger story. You see, when we read this list of names, our eyes might glaze over as if they have nothing to do with us. Sure, we might realize why our parents named some of us Ruth or David or Josiah or Joseph. But we look at names like Zerubbabel or Aminadab and and think to ourselves, well, this isn't my story. But friends, this is our story. And these are our people. You could be a fifth generation Aussie, a second generation Korean, or maybe, just maybe even born in New Zealand. Well, Matthew chapter 1 tells our story far more than any of those stories ever could. These names are our people 
more than any other people. You see, our story didn't begin when we trusted in Jesus. Our story began all the way back with God's promise to his people. And today we see how Jesus kind of brings all the threads of our story together. In one sense, how all the many arcs in the story of God cohere in the birth of this one child. We see how Jesus makes it possible for our names to be included on a far greater list. Wouldn't that be absolutely amazing? You see, in one sense, this genealogy, it's a flashback to the story of God across three mini arcs that we've all seen before. Promise, kingdom, and exile. And just like any flashback, you'll notice that this genealogy, it doesn't include everything. It only includes the most important scenes and the most important names. This chapter is like three flashbacks that jump from the past to the present to show us that Jesus is Abraham's fulfilled promise, David's eternal king, and Israel's new beginning. And there are three points today. And then just like three separate images cohere together in a collage that when you zoom out, form one bigger picture, one larger portrait, at the end of this passage, we'll step back and we'll see an even bigger picture of Jesus. Jesus as our only saviour. Act 11, Cradle. Well, so many of our favourite stories are anchored in a promise, aren't they? So many stories we love are anchored in a prophecy of a chosen one who will come and change the course of history. Uh, Just think about the Jedi who will come and restore balance to the Force. The the child of prophecy who will revolutionise the ninja world. Or the one who will finally destroy the Matrix, end the war and bring freedom to our people. You know, Luke, in his gospel, begins his genealogy all the way back with Adam in Genesis 1. But here in Matthew, he begins his gospel with Abraham in Genesis 12. You see, in this first flashback in verses 1 to 6, Matthew begins with the promise. The promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago. That his children would be God's people living in God's kingdom with God as their king. And that through this one kingdom, God would restore this world to everything it was created to be. You see, Matthew starts with the promise to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment. And so in verses 2 to 6, look at what he does. He moves through the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And he highlights the key names in God's story from Genesis all the way to the book of Ruth. Do you remember all the way back, all those months ago, early on in the story of God, as the promise was being progressively fulfilled? Do you remember? The redemption of God's people, the covenant under God's rule, and the conquest of God's land. Step by step by step, God was fulfilling his promise. And Matthew wants us to realize that everything that God had promised finally is ultimately fulfilled in its fullest and final form in the birth of Jesus. You see, Jesus is that one who will finally destroy sin, end the war and bring freedom to humanity. 
He is the one we've all been waiting for. Now, I'm aware, particularly if you're a woman, that you might read this list of names and just see a story all about men. And while you might know in your heart and your head that the gospel is both for men and women, there are some parts of the Bible where, let's be honest, it's just a bit hard to see that it's both for men and for women. But did you notice that in these opening verses, Matthew mentions four women? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Now, bit of context, right? It's not unheard of, but it would have been pretty uncommon to see women featured in any genealogy of that time. And when women were featured, they were more often than not the powerful matriarchs of Israel. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But I want you to notice, in this genealogy, we find four minority women. And if you know their stories, you'll know that all four of them have somewhat of a checkered past. Tamar was abused by her brother, brother-in-law Onan and conceived a child out of wedlock. Rahab was both a Canaanite and a prostitute. That's two crosses against her name. Ruth was a Moabite widow who lived in financial and social insecurity. And Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, well, So many of us know her story, don't we? King David committed adultery with her, and then he killed her husband, Uriah. You know, in a story full of men, it's almost as if Matthew wants to show us that not only does God include women in his story, no, he platforms them as well. In fact, he chooses minority women whose society would have excluded at every turn, and God chooses them to be champions in his story. Just think about it. In order to bring the savior of the world into the world he would save, God chooses an abused woman, a foreign sex worker, a poverty-stricken widow, and the victim of David's greatest sin. It's remarkable, isn't it? You know, sometimes we look around and we look at who is God included in his story? And depending on where we look and how we see the world, we might think that God only ever includes the strong and the successful. And in our heart of hearts, we may just wonder, what place does God have for me? You know, if you've been the victim of sexual assault, a sufferer of chronic illness, or someone who lives with that weight of depression and anxiety, It's so easy to feel invisible, isn't it? To feel ignored. To feel left out. To feel as if you're part of no one else's story. But friends, I want you to know that God includes the excluded. He accepts the rejected. He exalts the lowly. And he remembers the forgotten. God includes people just like you. He includes people just like me. Jesus is Abraham's promise fulfilled. And he extends that promise to you. That one such as you and one such as me might be included in a kingdom such as this. Gosh, not even included. You might even be deployed and used by God in this kingdom just like these four women here. 
Jesus is Abraham's promise fulfilled for you and me. Secondly, Jesus is David's eternal king. Unlike Luke, who traces his genealogy all the way through to Joseph, Matthew traces the line of the kings. In verses 6 to 7, he wants us to realize that Jesus is the Davidic king, the king who will reign forever. You see, in this second flashback, he mentions the good kings, David, Solomon, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And he mentions the bad kings, Rehoboam, Joram, Ahaz, and Ammon. And he mentions all the kings in between, the mix of the good and the bad, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, and Manasseh. And as he moves through this list of kings, we can almost hear the question that rings through Matthew's mind. It's almost as if he's on the lookout. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? That promise of 2 Samuel 7 is ringing in his ears. I will raise up after you your your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And as Matthew lists all these names, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? It's like the leader of a breakdance crew, always on the lookout for his successor. But then you see the awkward air flare and you think to yourself, he's not the one. Or it's that teacher who's always on the lookout for their next star student who will be the Melbourne University's Chancellor's Scholarship. But then you see her sack score and you say to yourself, she's not the one. Or it's like all of us looking for that best friend or that husband or that wife, the one who will never let you down, but then they just don't pick up the phone that one too many times and we say to ourselves, they're not the one. Well, no matter how good the kings of Israel may have been, even the best of them like Hezekiah and Josiah, no, Matthew looks at the sin of each and every one of them and he says, he's not the one. None of them were the king that Israel needed. None of them were the eternal king that God had promised. All of them fell short in some substantial way. And let's put their sin to one side for a moment if we could even do such a thing. Let's face it, mortality is a stubborn thing, isn't it? All of them would die. None of them would reign forever. Until now. Until now. Jesus comes as David's eternal king. He comes as the king who will reign forever and ever and ever. Finally, Matthew can stop asking himself the question, is this the one? And he can look at Jesus and say, this is the one. You know what's terribly sad though? For so many of us, we so often live as if Jesus had never come. It's, you know, we're always on the lookout for a king who we can trust with our whole lives. A king who will give us a mission, a home, and a people. We're like the 14 generations of Israel, always asking ourselves, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? But mate, the search party's over. The genealogy has run its course. Jesus has come. He is David's eternal king. 
And that has two important implications for our search for a king. Firstly, without Jesus, our search for a king will never end. We will be trapped in an eternal search for a king we can never find. We will live lives of ultimate dissatisfaction. But secondly, with Jesus, friends, our search for a king is at an end. He is the only king who can satisfy our search. He is the only king who reigns forever. Don't run back up the genealogy asking yourself, is this the one, as if Jesus had never come. No, let me tell you the answer. Whenever you're tempted to look at other people to ask yourself, is this the one, is this the king? Let me tell you right now, he's not the one. She's not the one. They're not the one. No, Jesus is the one. Jesus is our only king. When will we open our eyes and realize that Jesus is David's eternal king? When will we just get it that we need to search no more? From verses 6 to 11, Israel waited its whole history for this king. And as we sing every Christmas, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. What a shame. What a shame if we miss that kingdom. What a shame if we miss that king. Jesus is David's eternal king. Thirdly, Jesus is Israel's new beginning. You know, in this third flashback, Matthew jumps back to where we've been for the past two weeks. Exile and return. In verses 12 to 17, he highlights the names of those people who would have been kings had the kingdom of Israel continued after exile. So he starts with Jeconiah, uh, which is just another name for Jehoiachin, uh, one of the last kings of Judah. But you see, after Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, do you see all those names from then onwards? We don't really know anything about these men. All we know is that they lived through the next 400 years of silence as Israel waited for God. Not just to bring them home. No, no, he did, he did that last week in Ezra, didn't he? No, Israel. They're waiting for God to restore them to everything they were meant to be. God's people living in God's kingdom, under the rule of God, through his eternal king. You know, that one thin page in your Bible, the one page between Malachi and Matthew, that one page that says the New Testament, that represents 400 years of waiting. And these men, in verses 12 to 17, lived in that time. That time, it was like a drought that was just waiting to be broken. A dam that was holding back the magnitude of expectation. You know, I know some of you here have been engaged for far longer than you would hope. And your wedding just keeps getting pushed further and further back. As the weeks and the months drag on, you feel that expectation just building, don't you? That longing to start a new life together. In verse 16, the drought finally breaks. The dam finally bursts and the new beginning finally comes. Jesus is Israel's new beginning. 
I've loved preaching through the story of God. But let me be totally honest, there is one part of it that has gotten me just a little bit. You know, we've seen God give Israel so many fresh starts, haven't we? I mean, he forgives Adam and Eve for their sin. Abraham for his faithlessness. Israel for their idolatry. And all the kings for their rebellion. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament, it's exhausting. It's a bit like Groundhog Day, isn't it? An infinite loop of sin and salvation that just never seems to end. I just want the cycle to break. I just want a fresh start. I want to turn over the leaf once and for all. I want a decisive new beginning. Well, friends, that's exactly what God delivers in Jesus. It's as if he throws a spanner into that cycle of sin and salvation and guarantees that it's now salvation from here to the very end. In fact, Look at verse 1. Verse 1 literally reads, an account of the genesis of Jesus Christ. It's as if Matthew has the book of Genesis in mind and he's playing off it to show us that what Jesus brings is nothing short of a whole new creation. You know, when we talk about a new beginning, it's not just as if it's the next chapter in God's story. No, this is the whole new beginning of God's story. In one sense, this is the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. This, in this cradle, in the birth of this child, lies the convergence of history and eternity. Jesus is Israel's new beginning, and he is our new beginning as well. If you're not a Christian, let me ask, do you believe in new beginnings? Now, I don't just mean a new chapter. I mean a whole new story. A fresh start that says whatever your baggage, whatever your history, whatever your shame, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter anymore. Do you believe in a new beginning that is so fresh that you could even call it a new birth, a new life, a new world? You see, I want you to know that that's actually possible. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a fairy tale. No, in Jesus Christ, we see that it's history. We see that it's reality. And we see that it's what Jesus offers you today. Jesus was Israel's new beginning. Jesus is our new beginning. And Jesus can be your new beginning as well. Brothers and sisters, how liberating is that? You know, I'm convinced that we Christians, we need to better live out our new creation life. We need to realize that we don't stand in the position of Abiod or Eliakim or Eleazar who are waiting for God to give them that new beginning. The drought has broken. The dam has burst. The new beginning has begun. So once again, stop running up that genealogy. Don't run back to a life before Christ. Don't live in paranoia that God will somehow abandon you. No, he won't. That cycle of sin, salvation, sin, salvation, it's over. It's salvation from here to the very end. You see, friends, Jesus is your exit from exile and your entry into eternity. And the last time I checked, eternity don't end. So... Enjoy the confidence that we have of our new beginning in Jesus. 
Well, friends, I wonder, have you ever seen a collage of Im images that when you put it together and you zoom out, it forms a whole new picture? That's something of what happens here in verses 18 to 25. As we step back, we see Jesus not only as Abraham's fulfilled promise, not only as David's eternal king, not only as Israel's new beginning. No, we see that bigger picture of Jesus, our only saviour, our only saviour. And, and it comes, it comes about once again through an unlikely woman. Now, like some of you, if you know the story, like some of you, Mary was engaged to Joseph. But midway through her engagement, something unexpected happened. Mary fell pregnant, and it wasn't with Joseph. Now, for the engaged couples among us, for all the curveballs you've been thrown this year, let this not be one of them. Just imagine being Joseph. Now, under Jewish law, he's well within his rights to actually call off the engagement and to do it pretty publicly as well. But Joseph is a godly man, and he chooses to show mercy, to be discreet about it. But then he has a dream. And in that dream, an angel of the Lord appears and tells him that what has been conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Now, God has healed barren wounds before, hasn't he? We think of Sarah, we think of Hannah. But this... Oh no, this is something new altogether. This is God himself coming to us. God himself coming as one of us. That's what we see down there in verses 22 to 23. You know, back in Isaiah chapter 7, God promised to personally come and save his people from their enemies. Well, here in Matthew chapter 1, God delivers on that promise and he personally comes and saves his people from their sins. I mean, that's what the name Jesus means. The Lord saves. Friends, if you think back for a moment, a few weeks ago, I asked some of you to fill in the blank. Jesus is my what? And many of you wrote, Savior. Jesus is my Savior. And if that's you, I'm so glad that you did. Because Jesus' primary mission is to save us from our sins. Yes, he is our king. Here at Cross and Crown, we long to see every tribe worship Christ as king. But if Jesus is only our king, if Jesus is our king and not our savior, then you and I are stuffed. Because the king will not come either to save or to judge, nothing in between. And if Jesus doesn't come as our saviour, we will face him as our judge. It's not enough for us to say that Jesus is our saviour. And it's not enough for us to say Jesus is our king. No, we must say both. We must say that Jesus is our saviour king. I mean, that's what it means for him to be the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' surname. He is not Mr. Christ. No, he is Jesus Christ, our Saviour King. You know, organisations love repeating and rehashing their mission statement, that one line that explains why they exist. Well, God's mission statement is just two words. Save 
sinners. Save sinners. You know, for all the good causes we can commit our lives to, no cause can ever surpass this. There are many good things in your life that you can commit your life to doing, but there is no greater cause than the mission of God. God's mission is not to reduce global carbon emissions. And my gosh, it's not even to dismantle the social structures of systemic oppression and racism. No, the mission of God is very clear. Save sinners. And the birth of this one child in this cradle lies the center of the story of God. The savior of the world. Friends, let's face it. We all skip over the genealogies, don't we? I mean, with all the unfamiliar names, it just seems so irrelevant. But let me ask, what if, what if you were reading that genealogy and buried in that list, you saw your name? Surely it would feel more relevant, wouldn't it? Surely then if you saw your name, you'd be slightly more excited. If you saw your name buried in that list, wouldn't it so visibly and tangibly help you realize that Jesus is your fulfilled promise? That he is your eternal king, that he is your new beginning. You know, this list of names, it looks backwards to our history. But there is another list of names, isn't there? There is another list of names that looks forward to our eternity. Names of sinners saved by Christ. So we look at this list. And you know what? This list, it it has a root. But I'll tell you what, so does that list. The book of life, it says, Ruth lie. This list has a Joseph, but so does that list. Joseph Lim. This list has a David, but so does that list. Dr. David, no, David N. This list has a Josiah, and so does that list. Two, in fact, Josiah Chin and Josiah Yao. Brothers and sisters, there is a list for all of us who trust in Jesus. And our names are written on it. If you're not sure if your name is in that book of life, make sure that it is. But on that list, in that book, are the names of sinners saved by Christ. Act 11, Cradle. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are our Saviour King, faithful through every generation and always with us by your Spirit. This day, may we see your glory. Amen.